John chapter 18 from verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews didn't enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we'd not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and he said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me... I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you'd have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This is the gospel of Christ. All right. Thank you very much, John. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be spending uh, the next couple of weeks in the lead up to Easter, uh, looking uh, closely at the events immediately leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection coming from John's Gospel. Uh, always a good time to do that, but especially leading up to Easter. And it's good to, to give ourselves some time to do that, to take it uh, a little bit slowly. Uh, if you know 
John's Gospel, you've probably heard it called a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Uh, He spends seven chapters out of his 21 looking at just uh, 24 hours of Jesus' life, the last 24 hours. So there's obviously lots here that he wants us to see and God wants us to see about what happens in these uh, events immediately leading up to the death of Jesus. So I wonder if you'd uh, pray with me this morning as we prepare to look at that. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word written for us, for this book written by John for us. Father, this morning as we come to listen to it, to hear what you are saying to us, we pray that you would calm our hearts and our minds, enable us to turn aside from whatever distractions present themselves, open our minds to understand, enable us to obey you from the heart. Give us, we pray, Father, a clearer vision of your Son, that we might know him better, love him more, and serve him with our whole lives. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, it's always good as you uh, begin looking at part of the Bible to step back for a moment and see the big picture of uh, what that book of the Bible is about, especially when you're jumping into it out of the blue, like we are with John today. Now, thankfully, uh, John is one of those books in the Bible that makes it nice and clear for you what it's actually all about. You don't have to do a whole lot of guesswork or reading back and forth to figure out why did John write this thing he tells us it's nice and easy so if you if you have a bible there uh, and you want to flip over or swipe over whatever you do these days uh, or you can just listen as I read to you uh, from the very end of John chapter 20 verse 30 and 31 this is what John writes he says Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there it is. It's a a nice, clear purpose statement. That's why John wrote this biography of Jesus. He wants us to see who Jesus is based on the evidence of Jesus' life. And as we see who Jesus is, he wants us to believe in him, to put our trust in him, and know that as we do that, as we put our trust in Jesus, We will have life in his name. But you could be forgiven for asking, how do the events in our passage today, and really the events from chapters 18 and 19, which is a bit of a block that we're jumping into the middle of, how do the events of those chapters show us that Jesus is God's chosen king and God's son? Because what we see in those chapters is Jesus being arrested in the middle of the night. We see him being dragged away and put on trial. We see him being abused by the ruling authorities of the day. We see him being insulted by his enemies and abandoned by his closest friends. And we ultimately see him being executed in the most painful and shameful way that humanity has ever invented. Now, for anyone else in history, if you wrote up an account of the last 24 hours of their life and it looked like that, you would come away thinking, that person failed. Their life, whatever it did before that moment, came to worse than nothing. It came to a degrading and insulting end. So how is it that John records these things for us in detail and intends it not to make us think that Jesus is some fool, but that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God? I want us to see over today and next week, even in these moments, 
or you could say in some ways, especially in these moments. John is showing us that Jesus is someone worthy of our trust, our devotion and our adoration. That he is the Son of God who came into the world to give us life. And we're going to look at that today through two things. Through one thing that is said about Jesus and one thing that Jesus says about himself. So let's let's work our way through this and look at those two things. As the passage begins, the one that John read for us, uh, what's happened in the lead-up is that Jesus has been arrested at the start of chapter 18 and he's been taken to the Jewish high priest of the day, a man called Caiaphas. Now, apart from Jesus himself in the, in the section we're looking at, there's really two uh, either individuals or groups that are driving the action along. One is the Jewish leaders of the day and the other is Pilate. Now, we're going to come back and look more at Pilate and Jesus' interactions with him and what we learn from looking at him next week, God willing. But just for a moment, let's look at what John shows us about these Jewish leaders who were so central in Jesus' execution. Uh, One of the things as you read John, you see over and over again that he's, he's brilliant at packing insights into the smallest of details as you see what he's doing in his unfolding story. So look, for example, at verse 28. He says there, to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, how is that for irony? We don't want to set foot in a Gentile building and become ritually impure so we can't eat a certain meal, which, by the way, wasn't actually forbidden in God's law to them in the Old Testament. But we have no problem at all using a Gentile leader as part of a conspiracy to put an innocent man to death. And that innocent man happens to be the very Passover lamb himself, the son of God. Talk about neglecting the bigger matters for superficial righteousness. Or in verse 30, Pilate comes along and he says to them, okay, well, tell me what are the charges you're bringing against Jesus? And they just say, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. They're basically saying, oh, He did something wrong. We're sure he did something wrong. Maybe can't quite remember what it is or can't spell it out, but it was something bad. Trust us. They've just reached a point where their growing desire to see their enemy killed has distorted their thinking to that point they can't even articulate what it's about. The account that John gives us is filled with irony and it's meant to be tragic. But that's the build-up to a crucial statement in verse 32 crucial thing that is said about Jesus. Just walk through it with me, begin at verse 31. Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your law. So Pilate's essentially saying to the Jewish leaders, you want him dead? Take him. Do it. Do it your own way. But they object. For all their hatred of Jesus, they don't want to kill him themselves. And so they say, we have no right to execute anyone. And so Pilate's given them permission to to take this man and be done with him, but they get cold feet. However, whatever the political reasons, whatever the religious reasons for their hesitation, John wants us to see the hand of God at work in that moment in a crucial way. Verse 32, This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Do you see why that is absolutely crucial in John's overall presentation of Jesus? This isn't happening because 
events are just spiralling out of control or because Jesus got on the wrong side of the wrong people. This is happening exactly as God intended it to, exactly as Jesus knew that it would happen. Even in his darkest moments, Jesus is not just a helpless victim. He is sovereign. His words are being fulfilled and his death is unfolding exactly as God planned. Now, what did John mean exactly when he said that? What did Jesus say that required his death to happen in a certain way at this point? Well, that the little expression there, the kind of death he was going to die, that expression is used in one other place in John's Gospel. It's back in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, uh, starts out with Jesus saying this. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, remember that phrase, lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And then in verse 33, John comments, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So the crucial phrase there is lifted up. Jesus says he'll be lifted up from the earth, which in John's account of it, becomes a synonym for the cross. Jesus has already spoken about this even further back in chapter 3. Let me read you from chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Chapter 3, 14 and 15. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, there it is again, lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. And that's, that's a slightly obscure reference that Jesus is making there, for most of us at least. He's going back to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers and something that happened there. But the big point is clear enough. Jesus taught that his death had to come about through him being lifted up through crucifixion so that he could bring life to everybody who would believe in him. Now, it may sound like we're labouring a pretty small point here, but it's actually a really important point. What was the usual way that Jewish people at that time would have put to death somebody that they thought was guilty of blasphemy? It was stoning. It's not really something you would call being lifted up, is it? It's being cast down, it's being crushed. But instead, Jesus is handed over to Pilate and to the Romans so that he can be lifted up. And if that doesn't happen, and if that's not true, Christianity falls apart. If that doesn't happen, Jesus isn't the Christ. The whole thing falls apart because we wouldn't have a God who had planned our salvation and brought about this whole thing for our salvation. What we'd have instead was just one more impotent, failed, wannabe Messiah who came across the page of history and moved across like a speck of dust. But here, even at this crucial moment, when the Jewish leaders could have taken him away, they could have had their way with him and been done with it, when things look bleakest and when it looks like Jesus' fate is just being decided by other people completely out of his control, his word is still being fulfilled. His predictions about his death are still coming true. God's plans are still being brought about. The Jewish saviour is being lifted up, being handed over into the hands of the Gentiles and lifted up to show that when he was lifted up in death, it wasn't just for the Jewish people to come to him to be saved, but that it was for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who would come to him 
that his death was the very means by which he'd draw all people. Remember John 3, that he'd draw all people, Jew and Gentile alike, to himself as he lay down his life for them. He came to save people a bit like Barabbas. Now, I would love to spend a lot more time on Barabbas. I think he's just a fascinating figure. He pops up and in John's version, he's gone so quickly. Let me just say this one thing. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us when we see what happens to Barabbas. Uh, One of the first Christian songs I ever heard, almost 20 years ago now, was by an Australian Christian musician called Nathan Tasker. Where are the Taskers? Hello. Yeah, so there you go, Nathan. You have to say Tasker because it's Australian, you know, so you have to put that little Australian twang on it. He, he has a song called Call Me Barabbas. And as a new Christian, he performed it at a convention I was attending and, and God used it to help me grasp this simple but really, really important truth. Just a few words from the chorus. Call me Barabbas, for that's who I am. All I deserve has been given to him. The guilty set free, the innocent must die. Jesus, the innocent one, sets us free by dying in the place of everyone who would come to him, being lifted up for us. What we have here is the Son of God, the judge of all the earth, letting himself be put on trial by sinful human beings. What we have here is the creator of the world, allowing himself to be put to death by his creatures. What we have here is a man who could have summoned thousands and thousands of angels to do battle for him, telling his followers to put away their swords and letting himself be taken away so that he could be lifted up in death for us. It may have looked like Jesus had lost and his opponents had him right where they wanted him, but in that moment, John wants us to see He's winning. He's winning the greatest victory he could ever win because he came to die and to be lifted up for our salvation. And when we, when we come to Jesus, when we see all those things about him and we put our trust in him, we begin life in a new kingdom, a new way of life where we're part of his kingdom. But, and this is the second thing we're going to look at, it is a kingdom that's not of this world. That's the second thing. Jesus says this about himself this time. His kingdom is not of this world. Now, as I said, we'll look more closely at the way he interacts with Pilate and a whole lot of things that get teased out there next week, God willing. Uh, But just in that one statement in verse 36 that he says to Pilate, there is so much for us to see. Verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Now, Pilate himself, of course, is he's an earthly ruler. He's got a little bit of power, not the top of the tree, but he's got some power. And so it makes sense that, you know, as he's trying to understand this conflict that's unfolding and that he's been caught up in between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, he sees this guy standing in front of him. It makes sense that he's going to try and process it in earthly terms. Of course, he's going to think that way. And so he looks at Jesus and he, he wants to know, are you trying to set yourself up as a king over these people over here? Is that what you're about? Are you planning some kind of uprising against Rome? Are you a threat to Caesar's power? Are you a threat to my power? 
That's the kind of fears that the Jewish leaders had inspired in him that he'd probably heard buzzing around the place. But Jesus wants Pilate and us to see that he is operating on a completely different level. You you think I'm interested in being the ruler of a small little patch of land in the Middle East? You think I'm interested in overthrowing puny little Caesar who's going to go the way of every other leader in history and his empire is too? No, Pilate, I came to do something on an infinitely bigger scale. Yes, I'm the king, that's the implied answer, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's not from this world. And look, he says, if I was trying to establish an earthly kingdom, do you think it would look like this? Do you think I'd be standing here in front of you like this right now? Wouldn't my followers have got together and taken up arms? I mean, if you, if you know earlier in chapter 18, that's what happened, right? When, when the soldiers came in the middle of the night to arrest Jesus, what happened? Peter grabbed a sword and attacked one of them. Typical, impulsive Peter. Thought he'd solve the problem right there and then lopped off the ear of one of the soldiers. What did Jesus do when that happened? He said, right, it's on. I'm going to call down the angels and the fight's going to... No, he didn't say that. He said, Peter, put the sword away. It's not what this is about. And he heals the man's ear and then goes with them quietly. His kingdom is not of this world. Friends, there is no doubt when we look at Jesus for any length of time at all, he is a confronting figure. Jesus is not an easy person to do business with. Jesus does extraordinary and unexpected things. Jesus challenges our preconceptions about ourselves and about the world and about God. Jesus rattles our cages and he gets up into our personal space. He says things like, my kingdom is not of this world. Humanly speaking, that's a big part of why he was killed. He didn't fit the categories that the Jewish leaders of the day had built up in expectation of what the Messiah would look like or what a religious leader should look like. He didn't fit the categories that Pilate had, as we'll see more of next week. He doesn't come before us today like just any other religious leader. His kingdom is not of this world. So he doesn't offer us earthly happiness or earthly pleasure or earthly success or a victorious and triumphant life, no matter what Joel Osteen might try to tell you. If you're not a Christian, it's possible you could look at Jesus in a passage like the one we have today and think about these things and you might be confused. Maybe you might even be angry kind of like the Jewish leaders clearly were by this stage. I mean, you might not be so far down the track of saying, yeah, I'm glad he died, but maybe there is that response of anger of, who is this guy? This is a bit uncomfortable for me. You know, back off, Jesus. Or maybe maybe he just puzzles you and you have lots of questions that you want to put, like Pilate did. You're wondering, who is this guy? Could this all be true? Let me assure you again, Jesus isn't going to offer you everything that you ever dreamed of in this life. It's not what he's about. His kingdom's not of this world. You've got to think on a different level to understand who this man is and what he offers. But he does offer the greatest gift of all. He offers life in his name. As you see that he's the Christ, as you see that he's the Son of God, as you believe in his name, 
as you believe in what he's done for you in being lifted up and dying in your place, he offers you the truest and the best and the fullest kind of life that there is, far greater than anything in this world. He offers the forgiveness of your sins, a life right now where you can live in relationship with God and relationships with others begin to sort themselves out as you follow him and then the promise of eternal life with him forever. And so, yes, Jesus is confronting and he gets in your personal space. But can I just urge you this morning, if if that's where you are and you're asking those questions or you're feeling unsure, keep pressing in and keep looking at Jesus until you see the glory of everything that he is and the wonder of who he is and what he offers to you. And for those of us who already believe in him, who already have life in his name and know the joy that that is, well, it's always great to see our saviour as clearly and as powerfully as possible and to remember who it is that we're following and what life's going to look like as we follow him. And to remember this morning that we follow a king whose kingdom is not of this world. I remember years ago, not long after I became a Christian, my church ran a youth camp whole bunch of high schoolers went off for a week together and I didn't go on this camp but for months afterwards the church was filled with with young teenagers running around wearing hats they'd all been given a hat at the end of the camp and it said across it not of this world that was the theme for the camp not of this world and they just they wore it everywhere they bought into it and I didn't really get it at the time or I didn't think about it too much but I look back on it now and I think what a great thing to teach young followers of Jesus from the very beginning. It doesn't mean you're not in the world and it doesn't mean that you just be weird for the sake of being weird. I mean, some of us can manage that just fine on our own. That's not what being not of this world is about. If we follow Jesus, we're following a king whose kingdom is not of this world. Now, my church ran a week-long camp on it. We could run a week-long conference on that idea. You could read a very long book on that idea. So I can't say much. Uh, I've got about 30 or 60 seconds as we close here. So this is nothing more than a few bullet points for us to ponder together and pray over. What does it mean to follow Jesus whose kingdom is not of this world? Well, at times it's going to mean that the world hates us. Jesus actually promised that just a few chapters earlier in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. We'll have to make sacrifices we won't have the same priorities. We may not get the latest of everything or have the best of everything that the world has to offer. We'll look weird in our decisions from time to time. It means we'll have to examine our behaviour and make sure it's in line with God's kingdom, not just the, the ideas of the world around us. Sometimes we'll have to make changes. We'll care about things that others don't care about. Uh, we won't care about things that others do care about. Whatever it is, you can be pretty sure that if you're living in a kingdom which was started by a king who came into the world to suffer and die, well, life in that kingdom isn't going to look like a relaxing Saturday afternoon punt on the Avon. But is that king a great king? Is that king one who, even in his darkest moments, was thinking of us, acting for us, and bringing everything together? so that his will could be fulfilled. Is that king worth following? Is that king able to offer us 
real life, life to the full. Brothers and sisters, what a great king we serve. And it's my prayer that this Easter, as we build up to Easter and as we look again at our king, we'll rejoice at being part of a kingdom that is not of this world because it's his kingdom. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that even in those moments when things look darkest, your plans were being fulfilled and he was acting for our salvation in complete obedience to you and in complete love for us. Father, help us if we're investigating Jesus to see clearly who he is and what it would mean to follow him. And Father, for those of us that do trust in him and have life in his name, help us to live that life as those who are in the world but not of the world. Help us to live as citizens of your kingdom in obedience and trust and devotion to our King Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.